you're listening to the 10-7 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Joe Schindler, a lead trainer and lead developer at Osio Labs, whose mission is to empower anyone to build websites using open source tools. Joe is passionate about open source technology and has a rich and interesting past, having started out at a small ag- agency here called Triangle Park Creative, moved on to Lullabot, Drupalize Me, and now Ozio. He's also a snowboard instructor teaching kids how to snowboard, and I have lots of questions about pronunciations as well. So good morning, Joe. Welcome. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. Good morning. Um, so pronunciation, it's, my last name is Schindelar, um, so close, but not quite. And then uh, Osseo, we say Osio Labs, O-S-I-O. Um, it's technically a made up word. Uh, so I don't know that there is necessarily a correct pronunciation, but we all say Osio Labs and it stands for, um, open source inside and out. So it's actually an acronym. I love that that's the name. I think the, I think the reason I said Osseo is because the I kind of looked like an L to me, and I must have thought Oslo. Sure. So, But Osseo. Okay, open source, inside and out. I love it. And I actually was going to say Schindler, but I thought I heard someone say your name Schindler without the E, and I thought, oh, that must be the way you say it. <laughs> There's a very good chance that you've heard someone say it that way. It's a common common thing. And for the most part, like, unless I need to, I don't even bother correcting people because I know that they're talking to me and it's fine. It's, I, I feel the same way. What, what's the etymology of the last name? It's, it's Czech. Wow, cool. Yeah. It's very cool. Okay, so yeah. let's see. You're lead trainer, lead developer at... Osio Labs, uh, mm-hmm. but I want to go back a little further to you being um, at Osio, and I kind of want to figure out where life started for you um, and how you arrived where you are today. So where did you grow up? I, I grew up in Stillwater, Minnesota, um, so not too far from where I live now in Minneapolis. Maybe you're familiar with the area. I grew up just north of downtown Stillwater in a house kind of right on the riverbanks with a vacant lot across the street, spent a lot of time running around by the St. Croix River and playing in the woods outside in Stillwater. Wow, that must have been absolutely beautiful there. It, it was awesome. Uh, I, I loved growing up there. I also loved that, you know, when I was 14 or 15, we moved to the cities and there were things to do. Yeah, you know, all of a sudden I was like, I want to go to the movies and or an arcade or any of those things, and there just wasn't a lot of that to do in Stillwater at the time, anyways. Did you end up at Stillwater High School? I went to Stillwater High School for like half a year, and halfway through my first year there, we moved to Minneapolis. And was that in the '90s or a little sooner than that? Yeah, in the '90s, we moved in like '98 or so. So you're kind of a kid of the '90s. Yeah. What's your first memory of technology and the internet? I I kind of vaguely remember the first computer that we had at my house. My dad worked at the Science Museum of Minnesota at the time, and they had gotten a bunch of Mac computers for the exhibits department to kind of experiment with, and they didn't really know what they were going to do with them, whatever. My dad got to bring one home, 
And so he would bring it to our house on the weekend and we would set it up in the living room. Kind of like today, you might set up a TV or something in the living room and the whole family gathers around to watch a movie. My dad would set this Mac up and me and my sisters would all gather around and watch my dad play games. (laughs) Mostly he would play this game called Crystal Quest, which every once in a while I try to find a copy of it so I can play it now. But it's basically like little blobs floating around on the screen collecting (laughs) crystals. So I remember that part of it. And then I remember my mom really got into playing Tetris. And I like I remember this rivalry between my mom and our babysitter at the time. Greta would play Tetris and get the high score. And then my mom would come home from work and she'd sit down at the computer and immediately start playing Tetris in order to beat <laughs> Greta's high score. And then like the next day, Greta would show up to take care of us and she'd be like, all right, you guys can go outside and play. And she'd sit down and start playing Tetris to try to beat the high score. And this went on like forever but uh and that kind of stuck with me in some ways i played a lot of tetris as a kid and i still do occasionally now did you ever try to beat your mom's score you know i'm sure i tried to i don't really recall how that all played out i imagine today i would probably win because i don't think she plays tetris much anymore (laughs) you could beat your mom now okay (laughs) good nice joe if mom if you're listening i think that's a challenge (laughs) (laughs) that's great um and so that was the family computer did you i guess that wasn't connected to the internet no it wasn't right yeah you know my first memories of being connected to the internet are later and we you know we had another mac at the house and i remember getting connected to aol uh aol instant messenger specifically like my cousins had come to visit and they had AOL. And I think we were able to like dial into their account while they were at my house. And I was like, this is awesome. So then when they left, we had one of those like, you know, free month trial oh, discs yeah. and yeah. So signed up. And um, I remember spending a lot of time going into the AOL chat rooms and chatting with my cousins. Like I have... And that's like my earliest memory of doing things on the internet. I don't, and eventually that led to also, I guess, looking at websites and such. But mostly I just remember going into random chat rooms saying hi and trying to figure out who else was in the chat room with you. And in retrospect, I'm like, that is awkward and terrifying. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't do that now. <laughs> I feel the same way. Did you have one of those external uh, U.S. robotics modems? Yeah, we totally that- did. Yeah, and you could you could tell when it was connecting, and I would always have trouble getting it to connect. Yeah, I don't know. Boy, memories, huh? <laughs> Jeez, that was awesome. But you learn so much about how the internet works having those issues because you'd really have to try to figure out what the heck's going on. Totally, you know, in comparison to now, where it's like you connect to Wi-Fi and maybe it goes down every once in a while, but rarely, and it's just sort of like every device you have is connected all of the time and there's none of this like i have to turn on the internet and then wait for it to connect and hope that my sister doesn't try to make a phone call at the same time and like (laughs) just all kinds of it's amazing how much this stuff has changed it is it's really amazing i i remember my parents getting really mad at how much time i was spending on the internet but mostly because local calls in south africa with not were not free so internet service Uh, you'd have to pay for but to dial in you'd have to pay for the time that you were on the landline as well 
and the first month's bill, like anyone with the original iPhone knows, right? You use all that data that you don't know that you're using. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was bad. How that could was I possibly really... use more than one gigabyte of data? And then you're like, oh, okay. apparently I can do that in a day. <laughs> That's awesome. So still water high. And then um, what happened after that? Did you... Uh, what did you do for education? After yeah, that? when we moved to Minneapolis, I went to South High School for about half a year. A kind of a funny story there where we moved from Stillwater to Minneapolis in the middle of the school year. And Stillwater High School operates their school year on quarters and South High School operates on trimesters. And so we moved at the end of the quarter from Stillwater, but I couldn't get into South High until the beginning of the second trimester. And so there was this like almost one month period of time where as like a 16 year old boy, I didn't have to go to school in the middle of the school year, which was amazing. Yeah. Except for um, in order to like make this all work, my mom had orchestrated this deal with the with South High School that was like, all right, we'll give him credit for the full year, even though he's only he's missing a month. But in order to do that, he needs to spend a bunch of time doing some research and writing a report while he's on this break. And so I opted to write a report about U-boats. And so I did all this research on German U-boats and wrote a report and uh, like made paintings of U-boats and oh, cool. collected all of this and put it together, gave it to my mom so she could hand it into the school, started school went on from there. Like, yeah. So like 10 years later, I learned that my mom made this whole thing up. Like there was no requirement to write the report. And, and my mom was like, well, I can't have Joe and his sister just sitting around doing nothing for three weeks. So I guess I'll make them write reports. And she like dug it out of some box in the basement and was totally like, oh yeah, that's right. This thing. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> amazing. So, that's amazing. Yeah. So you ended up studying art in high school? I did. There's um, uh, a school here in Minnesota. It's called the Perpich Center for Arts Education. It's oh, a, I know that school. That's, right. a, that's a good school. Yeah, so I went to Perpich for two years. Um, and I was in the media program there. So nice. studying media art. And actually, it ended up being really fascinating for me because about the time that I was there, like 99, 2000, um, the program was transitioning from a lot of uh, analog media stuff. So photos in a dark room, um, creating video, you know, using VHS and uh, to editing decks and transitioning to doing a lot more like the, the school had just gotten its first digital cameras and first digital video recorders. And there was an iMac that had like the very first version of final cut pro on it mm. and so it was like my first year there i did a ton of stuff in the dark room and the second year there all of a sudden we were using like photoshop and computers wow. and and i was like this is cool this is what i want to do um and so you knew you wanted to be involved in computers right away in high school but uh so what was the next step i know that you went and spent some time in rhode island i when i graduated high school my initial plan was to move to New York City and become an action script developer and make millions of dollars writing Flash applications. Of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as you Flash, do. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I don't know. That didn't pan out. I never actually left 
for New York, uh, and I decided that I should go to college instead. And um, and then I bounced around a bunch. I went to a handful of different schools because I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. I started out as a computer science major at University of Wisconsin Stout. So I did that for like a semester and then decided this is way too hard uh, and I'm not good at it. So then I switched to math and I was going to major in math. And then I decided I didn't like that either. And so after a semester, I dropped out and didn't go to school at all for about a year. Um, I followed a girl out to Rhode Island and I ended up going to the community college out there and taking a bunch of art classes and kind of falling in love with art again after having Mm. not done it for a few years and did that and then moved back to Minneapolis and finally about eight years later graduated from the University of Minnesota with a degree and I have a Bachelor of Fine Art with a focus in sculpture. Wow, a BFA with a focus on sculpture. Yep. <laughs> and um, that's that's insane. And it, it's so interesting, the, all the people we've had on the podcast of the uh, different paths that lead to Drupal. Yeah, and, totally. And it seems like a lot of them go through the fine arts uh, degree of some sort. And, and like sculpture, that, that's amazing. So sculpture yeah. eventually turns into Drupal or was Drupal happening at the same time you were at the university? Because I know there's like all these overlaps as well. Yeah. I was starting to do Drupal at the same time I was going to school. I had a job working for a company here in town, Triangle Park Creative. I was working there pretty much full time uh, while also going to school and So I was learning to build websites on the job at Triangle Park and at school I was studying sculpture and um, in a lot of ways trying to uh, figure out ways to incorporate technology into the sculptures that I was creating. So Mm. microprocessors and sensors and that kind of stuff. That was hard so long ago, right? (laughs) Things weren't small. I was talking to somebody (laughs) about this the other day where like, not that it's by any means easy to do this stuff today but you know you there is a plethora of different microchip boards you can buy you know like Arduino and Raspberry Pi and all of these kits that you can get with sensors and assemble them together relatively easy in in comparison to even like 10 years ago and um you know and you could do all this the stuff back then but it was just a lot more You had to do a lot more of the kind of behind-the-scenes work to flash your program onto the memory of the board and get it to run and solder things together and all of these things that, as an art student, I was like, I have no idea how to do this. Um, (laughs) But what I really want is for this light to turn on when somebody walks past my sculpture. Um, And so I, I spent a lot of time tinkering with hardware stuff like that in order to incorporate it into the art that I was making. I had this idea that I wanted to make art sculptures that would evolve by virtue of the fact that someone was viewing or uh, interacting with the piece. So you go and see the sculpture and instead of it just being like, you know, a, a piece of concrete that, or, you know, sort of something that never changed. Like a sculpture that's yeah, static of David, right? Exactly. That, the fact that you had been there 
to visit that sculpture would reflect in the art for the next person that saw it. Mm. Um, and that was kind of like, that was the dream. Um, I would say like 80% of the projects that I worked on were like duct tape and bubble gum. And it was like <laughs> the fact that it held together long enough for a critique was always kind of really like the highlight of the sculpture. I was like, wow, it didn't fall apart. Um, <laughs> but I had a lot of fun doing that. And I learned a ton about uh, computers and programming and problem solving and debugging, like yeah. just things that I think, uh, I think about a lot today, even, you know, working on writing PHP for a Drupal module and you're trying to figure out why a particular aspect of it isn't working. The, the process that you go through to debug it isn't all that different than trying to figure out, you know, why your mechanical switch doesn't actuate when somebody walks by. Um, and initially you're like, oh, those are two totally different concepts, Joe. And it's like, yeah, but like, the debugging part of it is roughly the same, you know, try to isolate what the problem is and figure out what's causing it and see if you can replicate the problem and, and so on. And Are you still making art these days? Not, not really. Uh, not in any kind of like professional capacity. I have two little kids. I do a lot of coloring and painting with them, but uh, I, I wouldn't call it art per se. Yeah, well, I kind of miss doing that as well. I, I, it's uh, it's definitely something that rejuvenates and uh, kind of re-energizes oneself yeah. when you do it. So, so then I was also like working um, working at Triangle Park, building websites, and initially that was kind of like the goal. There was I needed a way to pay for school, and I had a job and. Um, more and more people kept asking us to build them websites and I kept getting paid to do it. So I thought, well, I'll keep doing this until I grow up and get a real job. Um, <laughs> and here I am like, you know, 15 plus years later and I, I still make websites. Still waiting to yeah, grow totally. up. Like <laughs> but it was, so you, you know, I, and I found Drupal through all of that initially what a lot of us have done that have been doing this for a long time, you sort of went through the process of trying to craft your own website and maybe your own content management system. In my case, like learning PHP along the way, I would go and look at the code and things like WordPress and Drupal. Mostly I would like copy and paste wholesale like yeah. things from Drupal into my code. And then eventually yeah. I was like, this is kind of dumb. I should probably just pick use one of Drupal. these and use it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I did. And I, you know, for various reasons, it meshed well with me. I, it solved the problems that I had at the time and it continued to evolve. And, um, and here I am, pay the bills. You know, like 15 years later, instead of being a starving artist, I uh, build websites with Drupal and teach other people how to do it. It's, it's a good story. So eventually you left Triangle Park and started with Lullabot, a completely distributed company. Yeah. Um, what was that like and why the change? I was looking for an opportunity to work with other people who were doing Drupal. Um, at Triangle Park, it was, at the time, there was just a couple of us, and we were doing Drupal, but mostly we were doing it kind of in isolation within Triangle Park, and I was interested in um, figuring out ways to participate more in the larger community. Um, I was also looking to have an opportunity to work with people who were 
better at this than I was uh, at Triangle Park. I think we all kind of like grew up and evolved together. And it was an awesome opportunity to learn. But you were never working with someone who was, you know, had had been doing this for a few years longer than you had. Um, And I was looking for some of that. And then the the opportunity at Lullabot, I wasn't I wasn't specifically leaving Triangle Park to go to Lullabot. It was more I one of those scenarios where I was in a fortunate position to be able to say, I'm going to if I don't quit here, I'm never going to put the work into finding what's next. And so I left Triangle Park and sort of had some ideas of what I wanted to do next, but nothing concrete lined up. And the opportunity to do some contract work as a trainer for Lullabot came up. And so I, I jumped on that. Uh, well, I, I applied for the position and didn't hear anything back for like three months. And I was like, well, I guess that didn't go anywhere. Uh, like, I, I think I... My recollection is that I didn't even get an email in response to the fact that I had applied like, hey, thanks for your application. It was just like radio silence. And then like one Thursday afternoon, I got an email and they were like, hey, can you be uh, do you, are you still interested in helping do some training? Uh, can you be in New York tomorrow? <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, I can. Sure. Um Wow, and it you know again for I was in a fortunate position to be able to make that work, and um, I did, and I started doing a bunch of contract work for them that more and more over the course of about half a year, and eventually that got to the point where I just said, "Look, I I'm you know I'm working for you like two and a half or three weeks out of the month, and it's making it hard for me to find any other work. I need to either come on full time or I need to go do something else." And so they brought me on full time. And then I was working from home full time, which uh, I I know you know this is quite an adventure and a transition to make. It is. It's the it's the been the best adventure and transition for us over the last two years when we started doing it two years ago. And so many good things about doing it for me. It's just the ability to see my kids and my family as much as I can. Oh, yeah. And it gets a little long in the tooth sometimes in the summer when the teenagers are all around. But yeah. um, otherwise, it's just amazing. So, yeah, it's it's really great. I I didn't realize that you jumped into work with Lullabot directly as a trainer. I, I was I just thought that that kind of evolved out of your, de- like, being a developer at Lullabot. But... That's actually, actually the not. other way around. The yeah. other way around. Wow. I started out doing training. So back in the day, Lullabot used to do a lot of um, in-person training workshops. Um, we would do trainings at DrupalCon and camps, um, but we would also organize and host events in various different cities. We would say, hey, we're going to be in Portland um, and this week, uh, or you know, for these two days, and we're going to teach theming. Uh, Then we're going to be in Boston for these couple of days and we're going to teach advanced module development. And if you want to attend, you know, here's the cost, come to the workshop. And in addition to that, uh, we were also doing those same workshops uh, privately for clients. And that was really kind of, at the time that I came on, that was really taking off as a business opportunity for Lullabot and they needed to have additional help uh, to do the training because they just had so much of it going on at the time. And 
I started doing that with them. And that for me, that evolved into, um, you know, I said earlier that eventually I kind of had to play my card and say, look, I need a a full-time gig or I need to move on. And they brought me on full-time. And then I was like, well, now what do you do? And um, the answer was I kept doing a lot of training. And then when I wasn't working on the training stuff, I mostly worked on internal projects. Um, And one of those was what eventually evolved to become the Drupalize.me website. It was this, the plan, you know, in addition to doing the in-person training, uh, Lullabot produced a bunch of DVDs. Of I heard training. about this. Yeah. Yes, I've heard this story from someone who shall remain nameless at this time. <laughs> we made a bunch of DVDs and um, they were awesome. And then everyone was like, why would we want DVDs when you could just have your training on the internet? <laughs> right. Uh, it was just like, you know, I think they did fairly well for like a year. And then it was like YouTube came around and people were like, you could you can put video on the internet. Like, why would I buy a DVD? So the Drupalize Me kind of started out as like, a, well, let's let's take our the content of the DVDs and put it online and charge people that way, which is pretty much what we did. Um, very early iterations of Drupalize Me, like when you would go to watch a video uh, of our training, you would sit down and it would be like, here's a four and a half hour video that you can watch <laughs> on how to build a module. Um, we literally like rip the DVDs and put them on the internet. Were there any FBI uh, <laughs> warnings on those DVDs? Or, or... I don't recall. I don't, I don't recall. Um. There are still a bunch of them in existence. We could probably find out there. You know, when you when you make DVDs to sell, you have to get a certain quantity of them printed in order for it to be economic. And so we printed out thousands of these DVDs and then sold hundreds. And there are now still hundreds of them in boxes. Um, like in Jeff's basement you know, or in Matt's I don't, basement somewhere. I don't somewhere. actually know if this is true anymore but for a while they were in storage at we had worked with this sort of like drop ship type company where you they store it the dvds for you and you send them a message and say hey you know ship ship these three to yvonne the contract that we had with them sort of stipulated that if we wanted to cancel our contract and get our remaining inventory back from them it was going to be like way more expensive than it was to just leave the dvds there and keep paying the monthly fee. Um, and so for a long period of time, those DVDs just remained in storage and you could, I guess you could call them and they would ship one, but I'm not sure if that's actually, there is still there or not. I will, I will ask Jeff the next time <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally. talk to him what's going on with that. So, so, so Drupalize Me then became quite successful. And then at some point it split off and it was no longer a part of Lullabot. And it was kind of run by, I, I think I remember it was called, was it called Lullabot Education? Yeah, that's correct. So Drupalize Me uh, was initially sort of a, like, within Lullabot, we had kind of the education department and we were responsible for Drupalize Me and for all of the like client training and in-person workshops and stuff that Lullabot was doing. And, you know, over time that business changed a bit. We were doing less and less uh, in-person training and more and more working on Drupalize Me. Um, for the most part, other than myself, it 
who was kind of like full-time in that department, people would at Lullabot would work on Drupalize Me like in between client projects, uh, which of course is like also, you know, synonymous with never. Um, and, <laughs> but the idea was like, you know, when you're not working on client projects, you'll have time to help work on Drupalize Me. And that it meant that like Drupalize Me while it was showing signs of being able to be really successful, was struggling a bit because it just couldn't get the attention that it needed to kind of get over that next hurdle. When it when it's a services company running a product within yeah. your services business, right? Exactly. And like, yeah. you know, there's this idea that like your services kind of ebb and flow and in between you'll be able to work on a product, but a product needs constant Full attention. Time. You can't yeah. just work on it now and then. Um, especially something like Drupalize Me, where ultimately what you're paying for is ongoing content. Like, yes, there's a technical aspect of like, we have a website and you can watch the videos online and maybe that part doesn't change a lot, but we do have to continue to produce new content. And Drupal 8 our... comes out. Yeah, Drupal totally. comes out. They're yeah. versions, yeah. Um, I've made videos about how to create a view in Drupal for like, Drupal 6 and Drupal 7 and Drupal 8. I'm like, ah, oh, I got this down. Um, <laughs> but so ultimately, like, the decision was in order for Drupalize Me to really be successful, you kind of need to, like, push it out of the nest and teach it how to fly, let it learn on its own. And, um, and so we did. And the company was split off from Lullabot into uh, what was at the time lullaby education. Um, and it was sort of like a, it was split off on paper. Um, so, you know, technically for legal reasons, we were separate companies, um, but we still had the same ownership. We were still all in the same Slack channel. We still all went on the same company retreat. Um, it was just kind of like from an accounting perspective and taxes and that kind of stuff. We were a separate company. Um, that was, I uh, that was years ago now, and it has continued to evolve since. Um, you know, the the ownership has changed a little bit. There's overlap between the two, but it's not identical anymore. Um, Lullabot Education, which is now OCO Labs, has grown. We still attend the same retreat sometimes, but not always. In some ways, it's, there's some logistic stuff about it that makes that really easy for us to do. And um, we just recently started our own Slack team. Uh, so we're no longer sharing the same Slack room with Lullabot. We now have our own. And I guess over time, what's happened is, you know, as, as OCO Labs has grown and we've hired new people, there are now a number of people who don't have that history. shared history. Mm -hmm. And trying to figure out how to balance that has been an ongoing thing you know it's like those of us who were part of lullabot at one time it's often difficult to be like ah i miss that or uh, you know I, I still i still am part of that these are still my friends um but then the people that never were don't have that history and it just makes no sense it's like lullabot who who are we talking about what's going on here and it's like you know trying to figure that all out and it's also maybe influenced by the evolution of the things you're you're teaching as well because yeah. you've gone from teaching purely Drupal and spinning that off as another company and OCO Labs now I mean you guys are teaching Gatsby and Node as well as Drupal and like yep. this is a, a kind of a more of a generalized 
company that isn't going to just take on Drupal. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I think it's like part of the name, the change of name. And really it's that like going from Lullabot Education to OCO Labs is like we've done a bunch of paperwork and we've changed our name. Everything else is still the same. It's a indication of our sort of evolution and growing up as a company and wanting to, you know, branch out into things other than Drupal and um, establish a name for the company. For, I guess, you know, we're looking at things like in other communities like Gatsby or Node or other open source areas that we might want to get into. We don't necessarily need that association with the Lullabot name that for Drupalize Me has been and continues to be super beneficial. So, and then we wanted a name that was a bit more reflective of, you know, the fact that we are, we're doing more than just Drupal at this point. Um, barely, but we're just starting to do more than Drupal. But the long-term plan is to take all of the lessons that we've learned teaching people how to do things with Drupal and, and the success that we've had with Drupalize Me and being sort of members of the Drupal community and find other open source communities that uh, as a business we can participate in and provide training, uh, provide support for the community, help the community grow, all of those things. I love that you're expanding and um, applying this the things that you've learned in Drupal to the rest of the world and the rest of the community. I think that's admirable, and I think you have a ton of value that you can bring to the open source community. And I, I, I just wish you the very best of luck um, in doing that. Thank and you. I'm excited to see it grow. Yeah, I, it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. I and think so. And I love that it's in the name as well. Yes. Just awesome. So you've been teaching for a long time. I think you alluded to the fact that it's been probably about 15 years or so. Yeah. And it's not just technology, is it? You're kind of a beast on the ski slopes, aren't you? <laughs> I actually have been... Te- yeah, so I teach snowboarding as well. And I've actually been doing that for quite a bit longer than I've been teaching people Drupal. Um, and I continue to do that today, too. Not nearly as much. Uh, teaching snowboarding does not pay the bills for me. Um, <laughs> but I still enjoy doing it. When did you start that? Was that around the same time as you got to the city, moving away from Stillwater, or how? I think I started in... I was in college, so... Oh, so you didn't do one of those Saturday camps where you get up at 7 a.m. and no, no. spend the day out on the ski slopes and mom and dad pick you up one, later? But that is... I teach <laughs> for one now, but I was never part of it. I, um, I got involved, uh, one of my friends... Uh, so I teach for a ski school here in Minnesota called Blizzard. And um, one of my friends had been in Blizzard when she was younger. And we were both in college now. And she had remained connected, or like her family had remained connected with the people that owned Blizzard at the time. And snowboarding as a thing that students were interested in was really taking off. And they were basically desperate for snowboarding instructors. And they were like, Joe, Katie, you know how to snowboard, right? We're like, yeah. Like, do you want to be teachers? And we're like, no, I have no idea how to be a teacher. And they're like, well, that's fine. Mostly we just need like warm bodies on the hill. That's usually uh, the case. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> it's really more like we need someone to make sure this group of kids returns safely at the end of the day. Um, and if they happen to learn something along the way, I guess that's a nice side effect. 
Um, and so I was like, sure, I can do that. Um, and I got into teaching through that and that kind of evolved over time too. I, after a couple of years, uh, as a pseudo instructor, um, I found some training that I could take to help learn to be a better snowboarding instructor uh, and then got certified through a a program called the American Association of Snowboard Instructors. Over over time, continued to like learn how to be a better instructor through that. Actually, I think part of what happened there is I had spent a number of years teaching snowboarding, getting certified, uh, getting to a point where I was doing training for other people to become um, certified as snowboard instructors. And this opportunity that I said or mentioned earlier that Lullabot was looking to hire trainers and I applied for the job. And one of the questions is like, do you have any previous teaching experience? Yes. And I was like, yeah, I do actually. <laughs> um, you know, not not formal in like a school sense, but I had all of this background from Blizzard, Blizzard teaching and, and helping with certification programs and that kind of stuff. You know, in retrospect, I think that was a big part of why they eventually called me back. They were like, ah, like, because every, like we just said, everyone in the Drupal community at the time, it was like, well, do you know how to teach people? And I was like, no. And they were like, well, that's fine. We just need warm bodies to stand up here <laughs> and flip through the slide deck. Right. Um, <laughs> I was like, I could do that. So. Yeah, my, my son loves Blizzard. He's been skiing for about, oh, well, eight years. He's been skiing since he was... I think three or four years old. And last year was, or this last winter was the first time he did the blizzard Mm -hmm. um, program. And he's, uh, he, he'll be 13 pretty soon here. He loved it. He complains about getting up early on a Saturday morning. Yeah. You know, I have to get up at six 30 and be there at seven. But he comes back with the best experience and people, (laughs) new people he's met. And, you know, they have a rating system on which ski slopes have the best uh, refreshments and fries. And it's just... It's funny to me that all the kids that attend the program, like, you know, we show up there. So how it works is Blizzard is a traveling ski school. And so we go to different um, ski areas around the Twin Cities metro area um, instead of just going to the same one every time. And you show up at one of these places, like you show up at Trollhagen and you're as a snowboarder i'm like this is awesome we're at a new place i can't wait to get out and go snowboarding and then as like a teenage kid they're all like hmm what video games do they have at trollhagen like, <laughs> like yeah, the perspective is a little what different doing <laughs> but and i often feel like one of the one of the things that i enjoy most about being in a, a snowboard instructor and is like the opportunity to take my passion for snowboarding and display that in a way that, you know, someone else gets to see it and sort of be like, wow, he's really excited about this and he's having a lot of fun. Um, I want to do that too. And especially working with kids, you have this opportunity to like, yes, you can teach them the mechanics of how to make a toe side turn, but also you can have a lot of fun. And so then the next week when they're, you know, getting ready to come back, they're excited to come back and they're excited to go snowboarding again. And hopefully they grow up to be adults that are excited to go snowboarding. I appreciate that work that you do as well, because I know it's uh, Cooper evolved from, you know, not wanting to get up and try and go to Blizzard to like, yeah, 
don't mess with my Saturdays yeah. in the winter because I have snow, I have blizzard to go to. It's it's just been great to see him do that. Now I'm going to ask you maybe a little bit of a controversial question. So I'm just this is a heads up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> have you biased your kids one way or another ski versus snowboard? I. <laughs> yes, I'm sure I have. Okay. <laughs> I have not intentionally told my children, you will snowboard and you will never ski. But at the same time, there's no skis in my house. Okay, um, yeah. My my kids are really young. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so neither of them are skiing or, or snowboarding yet. Um, we did get Wesley a snowboard last winter that it's, you know, like no bindings, just a plastic thing that with a rope on the front, and I'll pull him up and down the alley and he thinks that's pretty fun we've been talking about maybe starting them on skis in part because um generally kids can start skiing a lot younger than they can snowboarding um snowboarding Mm -hmm. just requires a different amount of muscle you need you know you need more physical strength to control a snowboard initially than you do with skis and to be able to do things like stop whereas for younger kids it is relatively easier to put on a pair of skis and, you know, make a wedge. Pizza, french fries, pizza, french fries. I I started skiing in my late 30s. I'm very familiar with pizza. Yeah, right. (laughs) That's about the extent of my skiing skills, too. So if I was to teach my kids how to ski, it would mostly be like, well, here's some skis. Here's a hill. I'll see you at the bottom. I think that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I will absolutely teach them, you know, skiing or snowboarding. As far as I'm concerned, like, they should choose one that's exciting to them. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't, I would rather them be really excited about a winter sport than me dictating what it is. And ultimately, like, I just want us to have things that we can do that get us outside in a Minnesota winter. Um and enjoy being outside instead of cooped up inside all of the time. Totally agree. Totally agree. My kids were in the Buck Hill um, program when they were like three and four. And my wife would take them out and here's this, you know, South African immigrant who's never skied ever, (laughs) you know, sitting in the chalet watching them. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? I got to get out there as well. It's never too late to learn anything. So... You know, they're going to be much better than I am and still are. Yep. But so what? We're out there. That's that's what counts. That's right. That's awesome. Okay, one final question. I want to talk about your handle. I've always thought it was the, <laughs> the greatest handle that someone has on Twitter. So it's EOJ the Brave. What, yeah. what's, the, what's the etymology of that? I So EOJ the Brave um, is EOJ is Joe spelled backwards. And then the brave with all the spaces removed. And uh, it's a funny thing because, you know, I I now have this like online moniker that everyone knows me as um, that was never intended to be something that people could pronounce. Like it was just supposed (laughs) to be a bunch of characters that you saw on the screen. I'd never thought about like, will someone be able to say my name? But now I attend all of these Drupal events and other, you know, open source community events and people are like, ah, you're Iage the Brave. And I'm like, well, (laughs) I don't, I guess you could say it that way. I, I, it's kind of like, 
Like, is it Osseo or Osseo? I don't right. know. That, right. Like, yes. It doesn't matter. Right. It's important that totally. we're talking. So I came, like, years ago, I was really into playing Warcraft, uh, Warcraft 2, and you could play online, and I needed to have a, uh, I needed to have a nickname that would, I guess, kind of inspire fear in the hearts of my enemies. And so what, especially in a like, you know, medieval war game, what better than something like Joe the Brave? And then I was like, well, online, you're supposed to be anonymous. Like people shouldn't know that my name is Joe. So if I just spell it backwards, clever, no one will ever know. And then it evolved over time. Initially, I think it was like EOJ space, the space brave. And then I probably signed up for something where you couldn't have spaces in your name. So I used underscores. And then I probably signed up for something where you couldn't have underscores in your name. So it just kind of all Ugh. merged together. <laughs> um, and now here I am, you know, like 20 years later being like, I should have just picked Joe. But <laughs> this works fine. <laughs> and uh, do you have all of the domain names as well? EOJTheBrave.com and all that no, stuff? No, I don't. Ooh. All right, I'm buying it right now. <laughs> I'm like, It'll be a little more valuable in a little this. bit here. Yeah, totally. No. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for giving that explanation and yeah, for course. talking with me. <laughs> it was just really wonderful to uh, find out more about you and what you're doing. And um, yeah, come back on the show and we'll maybe we'll think of, talk about some big ideas in, in the next episode. That'd be fun. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and just catch up. Joe Schindelar is passionate about open source technology and a lead trainer and lead developer at Osseo Labs. You can find him on Twitter and on Drupal.org, where his handle is at EOJTheBrave. You can also check out his personal chunk of the internet at DreamFormula.com. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. <laughs>